The therapist is only going to guide you to do work that's going to heal yourself. There's no psychologist, psychotherapist, psychiatrist. Like there is no person that can heal you. They can only guide you to do the work that you're going to heal yourself. All right, I can get behind that. The therapist isn't going to heal you. The therapist will guide you to healing, which doesn't mean don't go to therapy or don't seek professional help. If you know my work, you know that I'm a proponent of mental health services and professionals. I, I really can't stress that enough. Get help if you are struggling and a podcast or an Instagram post or even a book isn't enough, really, for the most part. Nate Postalweight is a certified life coach and someone who has been through it and who has and is dealing with CPTSD, Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And today we're talking about how to find safe ways to share your trauma and to empower your life story. We're talking about what it means to undo the shame in sexuality, how to validate pain, and how to process traumatic experiences. This is not an easy conversation, but an important conversation. Uh, you'll get tools on how to engage with parts of you that have experienced trauma. You will learn the importance of creating a safe environment and how to hold space for someone, uh, how to avoid giving unsolicited advice which you probably know that I hate. And understanding CPTSD and how it can affect your emotions and your relationships. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. All right, I'm ready, man. Okay, Nate. Could you please introduce yourself? Gladly. My name is Nate Polsterweight. I am a certified life coach with a background in positive psychology and wellness. And I am the kind of creator of the hashtag, The Healing Collective, which is a group of people who are on social media, sharing our stories and finding safe ways to affirm our life experience. I love the finding safe ways. I feel like a lot of the work that I do is, you know, helping people communicate and identify what their needs are to talk about boundaries and to share parts of their stories with people. And one of the caveats is always make sure you find someone that's safe, uh, that you can disclose to where they will hold you, where they will hold your heart in a gentle and kind and respectful way. And the reality is that that's not for everybody. Yeah. And I would say that that's just not a common experience, which is so sad that our culture and the way that we're brought up is to immediately detach from someone else's pain and not be able to hold that space with them and be present with them. And obviously a lot of my coaching and this 
movement that's taking place is coming from my own version of feeling overlooked and misplaced in the world and a lot of suffering. And it's been incredible to see how many people resonate with this desire to be seen and known in a safe way and how long it's been overlooked and just to not feel valid of, Hey, I've had this traumatic experience and therefore I feel like I need to rearrange myself and present myself to the world in a different light because I feel unworthy and the unworthiness comes from the traumatic experience. So it's this double whammy of therefore I should hide further and apologize to the world that I'm not able to show up the way that I like and, or in a way that's acceptable. And Sean, I could go out of business if we would just learn to validate people in their pain and help them understand. It's it's amazing how many sessions I start with a new client and the way that they're responding to really traumatic events. They're, they're saying things like, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed with grief and anger. And it's amazing how often they think that the grief or the anger is the problem and not the traumatic event. So teaching people to validate their experience is so huge and helps them heal so much quicker. Yeah, most of my business is telling, uh, giving people permission to do the hard thing. And, you know, they can save a lot of money by just doing the hard thing. But sometimes we need someone. Oftentimes we need someone to be able to hold that, hold our experience, our trauma, our fear, uh, our feelings that the grief is the problem and the anxiety is the problem and not the underlying trauma. Uh, permission to say no. I don't want that. It doesn't feel good to me. So I can tell people, yeah, just you know, do it on your own and save yourself some money, but often we need someone else to hold that for us. I'm curious, before we get into how we can feel seen and heard and how we can identify safe people, if you could maybe share with us a little bit about your story and how you got to be here today. Yeah, you bet. Obviously, I was a realtor for 13 years. <laughs> I've had this really bizarre experience where I was in real estate for many years and had this underground job as facilitating these groups where we talked about really hard stuff. And I got to a place a few years ago where my career was at its peak and I was just really unhappy and felt like I either needed to commit to success and constantly recreating my ego and building my little mini empower, empire, whatever, that just constantly left me feeling shorthanded or be bold enough to step away from what was comfortable and secure and start sharing my story, which I thought would help other people. But when I think back to my darkest hours, I, I constantly think about that. It was 10 years ago, just barely able to survive. It's really validating that part of my story, that 32-year-old Nate, trusting that there was a lot from that experience that by sharing it, it could have helped others. So in the summer of 2018, I left my career, bought a bunch of plane tickets and traveled internationally for about six months and started a blog and a podcast sharing my story. The crux of it at that time was being involved in conversion therapy for many years and coming out as gay much later. I came out at uh, 38 years old, right before I turned 39. And just my experience from growing up in the South in Alabama as an evangelical Christian and also having quite a bit of traumatic experiences as a child, a lot of abuse, being lost for decades, trying to get my 
internal self to match doctrine and the way that my life was supposed to appear to other people and constantly coming up short. In my early 30s, I had a, um, a nervous breakdown, and that was my kind of what I call now my rebirth, where each day I was in survival mode and hoping that the end result was living. Um, it was a, just a very dark, very painful chapter where a lot of uh, forgotten abuse as a child came to the surface. And at that time, I had only been involved in conversion therapy. And so kind of the core focus of my life was, hey, you're not allowed to be gay. If you ever pursue this, you'll go to hell and you can't be happy and you can't be blessed. Like all of the terms that most evangelicals learn very, very early on. And the, the really confusing dark part of that was when I came out at 18 with a lot of the sexual abuse that had taken place as a kid, it was counteracted with, well, that's why you're quote struggling with same sex attraction because you were abused. If I can make it my life's mission to undo that kind of damage for people, uh, I think people would be shocked to know how many of us fall prey to these ideas that our sexuality is formed by a type of abuse and therefore our sexuality is shameful. Um, it could, that alone could be my life's mission to just help the others walk along and say those two things had nothing to do with one another. My conflict with constantly trying to do this conversion therapy and then having more repressed just years of different types of abuse come to the surface is what caused the nervous breakdown. I mean, my brain and body just kind of went in opposite directions and said, I can't, I'm done. See you later. It's a very dark, very dark period of my life. I resigned from my job and hid, kind of hid inside of my home. And the only therapy that I had was within the evangelical community. And, you know, I was showing up, I had CPTSD, which was diagnosed later. And all I had was this Christian therapist saying, read these verses and pray harder and connect more to this Christian book. I mean, just really bizarre. When I look back now, it's like there was never a mention of, we have to get you the appropriate help. So fast forward 10 years, I'm healthier and happier and more at peace than I've ever been. I've had to go through a long grieving period of years that I lost to fighting other people's battles because I was in an environment that didn't know how to express pain or be honest or validate humanity. And now my job is to help people navigate their own stories and connect with the mystic links so that they can feel empowered and whole as a being outside of whatever structure or system they grew up in um, and recognize that, that that connection with self is the end result and that end result takes you forever on this on this earth. Hmm. Wow, that's a wild story. I can only imagine the amount of cognitive dissonance you have probably felt for like a huge portion of your life. And at some point, it sounds like, you know, mind-body just broke down. Couldn't handle, you know, what you were feeling and what you were hearing. Uh, and I, I sort of get the impression that you were like, in a constant state of being gaslit. Yeah. And when you think about a young kid, 18 years old, who is saying, 
hey, I, I had this happen and this happened and this happened. The sexual abuse was never addressed in therapy. That's the most bizarre piece. It's like, okay, there were multiple encounters with sexual abuse. I, I, just, I just grew up in a traumatic generational system where, and I hear this a lot in my coaching, where someone has just multiple, multiple layers of generational trauma that they experienced. And of course, we don't have the tools as a kid to think, well, this is normal. This is how you navigate this. So as an 18-year-old, I was certainly reaching out the best way that I knew how to say, this is everything that's going on inside of me. And naming the things that happened with the abuse, what that turned into was what you just said, that the gaslighting of, oh, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, it's because that happened to you when you were a kid. So what that does is invalidates the abuse it leaves the abuser off to the side, and then you're now responsible to undo what the abuser did. Mm-hmm. And I spent 13 years trying to do that the, the best way that I knew how. And I can I can speak about that calmly now, but I want to, I mean, anyone who hears this message who can relate, I want to just validate them and help them understand that if you're climbing the walls hearing that, or it makes your face flush red or your chest pound yes it's it's very painful to think about how many of us have been in those situations where we didn't get the proper help and care only because we grew up in systems who didn't know yeah and i heard you say you know obviously this your your presence today and your groundedness is the result of years and years of work with i'm guessing therapists that had different approaches than the religious therapist that you had growing up. Right. So it's important to note that this is what it can look like after a lot of work, it sounds like, and a lot of healing has taken place. And one of the things that I kind of, uh, that touched me was this idea that you talked about, you know, that your job is to empower folks and to help them realize that, you know, the instinct that we have, right? The internal wisdom, that's what we can tap into. A lot of my clients don't trust that. You know, my job is to help them recalibrate the internal compass because deep down, you know, you as a child knew that there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. Yet you had figures of authority telling you that you were wrong. And so, of course, there's confusion there. And there's anxiety and and then you get a diagnosis of CPTSD, which I would love for you to maybe share a little bit about what that means because I'm not really familiar with it. Yeah. I love I love what you just said, the recalibrate the internal compass. I love that just um, really says a lot about going inward, accepting our humanity and all of the stories that we've endured in order to feel whole again. I love that you said that. Mm-hmm. CPTSD is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, most people identify PTSD from war veterans, um, anyone who's experienced a you know traumatic experience that I, I always say rattles their nervous system and puts them in a position where they're constantly remembering that experience. It's registered so heavily inside of their body and their minds that they have a hard time functioning without being triggered. Uh, CPTSD is the complex version of that, which just means that you grew up with consistent uh, trauma at all times. So, you know, my first sexual abuse encounter was five years old and the last one was 14. And in between there were, you know, quite a bit more. And 
I was also placed in foster care shortly before that last encounter. So when you just you think about how many of us have lived in traumatic environments and experiences for a prolonged amount of time, it translates a brain and a body that can only go into survival mode just to stay alive. Mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot of processing and you know, you talk about cognitive dissonance, it dissonance, it's mandatory in order to survive when you have that much trauma that lives inside of your body. The way that mine manifested, um, I had a specific memory that had long been lost. And when it came to me, it just, I was 32 years old. It was really difficult to process another layer of abuse that had gone on that, you know, once I uncovered it, I understood why I suppressed it and why I buried that as far as I could and, and didn't want to remember but it shifted just feeling like my whole life was a lie. And I, I had already been working so hard in therapy. CPTSD doesn't give you the room to think and process normally because your nervous system is registering and, process, and reprocessing all of this trauma. And, you know, we, we talk about trauma so much. We are not made to endure trauma. Our bodies, our minds, no one has any system inside of them that is able to process trauma, which is why we call it trauma or traumatic experience. CPTSD has the, it's kind of like the framework to hold all of that trauma in place while you are, and you don't have the tools to actually make them process out. So they're just repeating. You just feel the traumatic experience every day and feel like, okay, is this my new normal? And so you're just, you're constantly in survival mode. Mine, the biggest, I would say the biggest breakthrough that I had was when I finally checked into an outpatient center. And I remember when my therapist handed me her card and after her name was comma LMFT, comma LCSW, comma EMDR, comma trauma. I mean, like she had so many credentials. Mm. And for me, I just thought, wait, what does this mean? Because all I had known was like the local evangelical like has a waiting list, super expensive white guy Bible specialist. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, my work with her changed my life. It, that was my introduction into trauma work and through like through her guidance and through that program, I had a massive breakthrough that week. And then it was interesting because the night that I got back home, I looked around, I had just built this, beautiful home. And that was right, right when I had walked away from my career. And I just looked around at my life and I was like, I cannot live this life. I can't be in this environment. At the time I was living in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I moved to California shortly after that, that kind of expedited the healing to give me some space away from an environment where I felt a lot of pressure and felt connected to an old self that was slowly dying and living in survival mode to hey, you've got options and you need to be really open to what it looks like. My next step was EMDR therapy, which I am a huge advocate for, especially when it's done safely with a therapist that you trust and have a strong connection with. Mm. It changed my life. It changed my life. So I did over 300 hours of EMDR therapy. Damn. Yeah. 
we had to go back. I mean, I, you know, I think that was the other thing about the diagnosis is that when the diagnosis came, I had all of these stories of trauma and the therapist was like, but I thought you had been in therapy and we saw all of these like layers and layers and layers of stuff that was never addressed. The trauma therapist was just like, I don't understand what your therapy is considering you had all of this stuff. You, these weren't secrets. You had this one thing that you forgot, but, but what is this other stuff? And I think that says a lot about the challenge of empowering the individual that when you're seeking help to trust your voice and trust your instinct to say what you need and the results that you want. And I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know that there was such a thing as trauma therapy. I thought that I was going to therapy every, you know, every Wednesday at one o'clock for 13 years. I didn't know that there are different versions of this that, that would actually help you heal. I think it's really important to highlight this, that you can talk to your therapist or interview therapists and say, this is what I want to work on. How are we going to get there? What is the treatment plan that you suggest? Right? Like, I want to work on my relationship with my father. I want to work on my avoidant tendencies in intimate relationships. And I want to work on my fear of commitment. You know, can you, A, work with me on this stuff? What do you suggest? And how long do you think it's going to take? And can we revisit you know, our benchmark every now and then. I think that's totally valid thing to do. I think people have your, your experience. They, they show up and next thing you know, it's been 13 years and they don't really know what they've been doing because the therapist maybe didn't have their best interest in mind. Maybe it wasn't the right fit. Maybe they were just happy to collect the, you know, the, the session fee every week. Who knows? And sometimes it's not a good fit. And sometimes you have to go and kind of shop around. And I also want to mention that, I'm a big fan of therapy. I also realize that it's not affordable for everybody and it's hard to find a good fit. And a lot of the work does happen in relationship with the therapist. And so it is important to find somebody who's a good fit. And also you might not be the right, you know, you might not be in the right place to identify whether somebody's a good fit or not. So it's hard. It's really hard to find a great therapist, I think. It's extremely hard. And I think that I love what you're saying. And if we can begin to tell someone who's in a traumatic experience to validate their own pain as they proceed and be able to say, the therapist is only going to guide you to do work that's going to heal yourself. There is no therapist that has the ability to heal you. There's no psychologist, psychotherapist, psychiatrist. Like There is no person that can heal you. They can only guide you to do the work that you're going to heal yourself. And if people can start to trust themselves and say, well, holy shit, I feel like a complete mess inside. How would that ever possibly happen? It will happen by you beginning to validate your experience and understand that you are entitled to healing. You're entitled to feel better in your body and inside of your mind. You deserve to feel that. We approach the therapy. It's just unbelievable how often someone who has been traumatized, like I was saying earlier, approaches therapy almost apologetically mm-hmm. and is saying to the therapist, will you help me? Like in these frail, vulnerable voices. And I want to help people navigate that better and be able to advocate for themselves and own that agency of saying, um, I have to know that at this time we will see results here and really trust your gut when you're speaking to the therapist for the first time of like Sean, like you and I were saying in the beginning, is this someone that can hold space with me where if I share information that I've never shared before, 
are they human enough to show empathy and professional enough to hold that space? Right. That's a beautiful distinction. And that, I mean, that's, that's key. I will say this, like so much of my history and story obviously is about bad therapy. And I've shared a lot of that. One of the things that has restored my faith has been starting this online community. The amount of therapists that support my work has, it's cleansed something in me, but it's opened my eyes where when I started this process of sharing my own story and building this community, it never dawned on me. You're going to have therapists that come alongside you and support your work. And what that's done is really challenged me to be open and understand that my situation was isolated. Is it shared among many other people? Yes. However, I'm being exposed to so many powerful therapists who do not have egos attached to their work and genuinely want to help people heal. And they're educated, they're trauma-informed, and they're doing whatever it takes to facilitate safe environments to empower the individual to do that work in that space. And so I, I do want to clarify that. I mean, I can, on the top of my head, think of 10 therapists that I just am just so proud to know that they exist. Yeah, I 100% agree. I have been fortunate enough to have two good therapists in my life that I've you know, had a relationship with for over two years with both of them. And I know that's not everybody's experience. Mm -hmm. uh, I also know that there's probably some people there that tried therapy and, you know, didn't think that the therapist was a good fit and probably didn't give it a good enough try because it's not instant. There's nothing instant about this work. It takes sometimes years to develop the kind of relationship in which you can go and have a bunch of breakthroughs. And sometimes those breakthroughs come quickly. And sometimes they don't. And it's, it's hard to quantify whether it's a good fit or not. Because it's, it's sort of like a relationship. You know, if you, let's say you have avoidant tendencies and you, you fear intimacy. Uh, just because you want to leave doesn't mean it's not a good fit. It's maybe you're wanting to leave because it's stirring up those feelings of intimacy that are so scary. And so you could have that kind of relationship with a therapist in which you do feel a little scared and you think it might not be a good fit. And it's actually probably just the kind of relationship that you need, which is why it's so hard to counsel people on what is and isn't a good fit. And I guess this brings us back to the recalibration of the internal compass. You know, like, do you feel unsafe or is this an edge that you're exploring? And how to make how to make the distinction between those two, which sometimes I'm guessing if you've had a lot of experience with trauma and you your nervous system is constantly rattled, that's really hard to make a distinction between I feel unsafe or this is just a, an edge that I could be exploring. Really hard. I mean, to live in a state where your your nervous system is always on high alert, I think makes it any relationship challenging because you're always in protection mode. So how do you open up with a therapist or with a friend or with a loved one? And you're so vulnerable in that space. So it's hard to say, do I even have an instinct when you, when you're talking about the internal compass, do I even have an internal compass? You do, you really do. And there are ways to 
ground yourself enough, even in that space to recognize safety and health. And I don't want to scare everyone to think you've got to ask these 316 questions to your therapist to make sure that they're the right fit. I just want to validate that people who have ever been harmed or wounded and felt like they weren't seen in their therapy who walked away and thought, God, what's wrong with me if the therapist didn't make me feel better? Maybe it was the therapist. And I just think that way too many people are having an experience where they, you know how we're taught in our culture, like we idolize people. We take people who are the it thing or the trendy thing, and we just elevate them above all. We ignore red flags. And then all of a sudden it comes out that they sexually assaulted 14,000 people. And it, we, but but we, we just elevate people and really idolize as if other humans have this unbelievable thing inside of them that we don't have. That's not true. It's just not true. People are people and people do things. I mean, it's, it's really looking and being able to say a therapist is a human being that has specific training. Do they have tools and resources that can help you navigate your healing? Absolutely. But they're still a human being. And I think it's, again, going back to that validation of you have a lot more power and agency in that process than what you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just touched on something that I'd like to move into this territory of, you know, you're talking about idolizing people that maybe seem like they've got it all figured out and they've got it all together and they're successful and they're making seven figures and they're charming. And and I, I want to say that even those people, this feels like such a basic comment. <laughs> I'm just going to say it anyways. Uh, even those people are hurting in some way, shape or form. And they might not even know it or are willing to admit it. I know somebody who's very close to me and she is always fine. Always fine. Has just one feeling, I guess, is uh, fine. Because she has nothing to complain about. And I know she's not always fine. But she can't bring herself to let people know how she's actually feeling. So she's hurting too, Uh, which is just to say that we're all hurting in some capacity. Some of them are more open and vulnerable, Uh, maybe because they've been hurt less, maybe because they've learned to open up because that allows people to get to know them. Um, And some people just don't have the tools or the role models or... um, have been traumatized to a certain point where it's just not safe for them to open up and to let people know that they're hurting. And I guess I want to say that if you're listening, there's a good chance that you're hurting and it's okay. Yeah. You know what I was, when you were giving those examples, my head went to the people who are idolized, who feel the pressure to show the world that they apparently have it all and are terrified to speak up to unveil that myth, you know, that they actually are hurting quite a bit and can imagine that would be also a very difficult position to be in. Uh, It's interesting. You bring that up. I, uh, on this podcast, this is long form content. So I share often about things Uh, situations in which I'm hurting, ways in which I'm hurting. On social media, though, I don't. Because, not because I don't want to show people that I'm like having a bad day or something, 
because of the the sheer amount of messages that I would receive from people asking me if I'm okay and offering unsolicited advice on how to feel better. And I don't have any space for that. So I don't share that kind of stuff on social media because I don't want to be the recipient of people's, it feels feels like kind of weird to say that, of people's well wishes, because I also think that some people are really not that great at holding space. Mm-hmm. And their version of holding space is actually, you know, my version of uh, verbal abuse, right? Telling me what I should do or need to do or to buck up or to, uh, you know, get over it or, or you know, lots of like sad emojis and telling me how valued I am. Kind of feels weird to, to name this, but I, I don't show that because it's a, it's, that's what I need to do to protect myself from a lot of well-wishers, which, you know, their hearts are probably at the right place with the intentions or the intentions at the right place, but the way it comes off is a little weird. You just you just named that so well though. I mean, you're you're clearly saying I am validating my experience, and my experience is sacred, and I need to hold it sacred. And I know that if I take it to this particular place, it loses its validity because I've invited other people into a space that I know that they can't hold. Unsolicited advice. I talk about this on social media all the time. I actually posted about that a couple of days ago about when people are courageous enough to share their pain they're never looking for advice they're looking for compassion they're looking for understanding they're looking for connection but they're just they're not looking for advice and i think that holding that space empowers them to say how do you want to connect with this like can you imagine if you did sean if you did post something really honest and vulnerable on social media and the responses were this helps me, Sean. Thank you. It helps me think about things in my life. Yeah. Or please. <laughs> yeah. Or I would have never known this. Thank you for sharing. It really helps, makes me more aware of who you are. I mean, just like why don't why don't we think of things like that that actually that, that are the genuine connection of our recalibrated internal compass? Yeah. Yeah. All that would feel great. I, I mean, I would share on a daily basis if that's what I got. I mean. I, I shared something about peanut butter, uh, peanut butter jelly sandwiches, and I got all these messages on how I was doing it wrong, how I had to spread the jelly more evenly, or how, uh, you know, you need you need to. I had posted a photo of like me making a mid grilled cheese sandwich, so the the cheese wasn't completely melted yet. You know, I'm like a 37 year old guy. I know how to make a, a grilled cheese sandwich, and this woman was like, "Well, what you really need to do is put that under the broiler so the cheese melts completely." And <laughs> Okay, I want to say that for guys like me and you, I think as well, um, I can't stand, I guess I'll speak personally, I can't stand unsolicited advice because I think I, you know, grew up with people telling me that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And at some point I realized, no, I fucking do know what I'm doing. I'm 37 years old. I got here just fine. Thank you very much. I do shit differently than the than you the way you do stuff. And sometimes, you know, the unsolicited advice doesn't bother other people. They see it as a form of love. Thank you so much for showing me the way. I see it as a form of of verbal abuse. I, I just want to highlight that like 
people have really, really different experiences with this kind of stuff. Some people, it doesn't trigger them when you say, uh, you need to or you should do this at all. And for me, as soon as you use those words, I'm not listening anymore. I'm the same. I Listen, when I came out, I remember being so excited and thinking, oh my God, this is great. Finally, I'm going to date and it's not fake and you know whatever. And so I went on, I had a couple of decent dates, but then the more I dated, I, I would sit across from these men who I, I would be mid-sentence. They would ask me a question and I would be mid-sentence and they would cut me off and answer it and then correct me and tell me why they view my answer the way that they do. And I was just like, what What the hell just happened? Like a grown, a grown man trying to answer your question and you're constantly giving me this unsolicited advice. This is a great example. I was on a hike on a date with someone and, and the, the whole hike was this way. I remember he said to me, where do you think that you might live long-term? And I said, I really think because I love rain, I love gray weather, I'm obsessed with lesbians. I think that I'll move to Portland. And I was mid-sentence explaining something else about Portland. He was like, you don't want to live there. They have a, a homeless problem right now downtown and you really need to focus on and started naming other cities. And it was just like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> like, how, how is it possible that you think I needed that advice or even am a little bit interested having just met you 15 minutes ago? And you think that that's appropriate to. So listen, I call that I've keyed that term emotional slobber. Ooh. Emotional slobber is when someone cannot sit with their own internal dialogue and everyone else is just an object to them. There's not an actual connection. You are a byproduct in a chaotic world that they live in. And the connection is just not going to happen. Mm, so it's just emotional slobber. Yeah. My friend calls it like drunk person stream of consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> that people are watching your stories and they just send these things. It's just like no filter, uh, not really a tactic to connect, or maybe it is. But it's like, it's a, it's kind of a weird one. Yeah. It's a weird one. And, you know, you also, what I'm hearing is that you had, you know, grew up in an environment where you, your experience was not validated until you healed and did like, you know, fucking thousands and thousands of hours of work and you started to empower yourself. And so it makes sense to me that when someone says, no, your experience is not true that like that doesn't jive with you. Like you're not into it anymore. Just like I'm not into it anymore because it took me a long time. You know, I grew up with people telling me I didn't know what I was doing and that what I was doing was a mistake. And I figured out somewhere along the way that wisdom is experience. It is not taught. You can tell me not to do it. You know, don't touch the hot stove. I'm going to touch the hot stove. I need to know for myself that it's hot. So when people say no or don't do this or you don't know what you're, you're talking about, I have to really go experience that on my own. Mm -hmm. And so, when, so now I'm, really, I'm just extra sensitive to it. I, I'm curious if you have a, if we can pause. Sure. Like I'm just curious what about that system that you grew up with, that you grew up in, what about that system? Why did they need you to play the role of the guy who didn't know what he was doing? what was going on in them that that's what they exerted instead of teaching and connecting? I think it was 
a misguided attempt at saving me from pain. Mm. So it was um, a way to protect me from pain. I really think that's what it was. I think it came from a place of love. That's beautiful. And, and most likely means that they have had experiences where they had wished they were protected from pain. Sure. And so <laughs> maybe it swings to the other, the other extreme. Right. And now we just pendulum from one generation to the other, you know, going back and forth. And maybe with, you know, with my kids growing up, uh, I will let them do stuff that where they'll end up getting hurt. And then they'll have wished that I was more present and like gave them more direction. And then they'll do the, the you know, I don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah. I think this, this idea of protecting people's feelings, no one wants to hurt anybody. I mean, okay, that's not true. <laughs> there are bad people out there and they do want to hurt people. Barring those people, generally we don't want to hurt people. And that's why people have a really hard time breaking up with, with other folks or uh, talking about their unwanted behaviors or harmful behaviors because they don't want to hurt the other person even though they're being hurt. Yeah. You know, like you're, har let's, you're harming me, harms me, but I'm too scared to tell you about it because I don't want to harm you. And it's a bad cycle. It's a bad cycle. And generally, I think people don't really want to harm each other. We do kind of what we learned growing up or what we picked up along the way. And it's hard. It's hard. Very hard. It's hard to speak up about that stuff. It's hard to be extra considerate of how your actions impact others. I mean, I hurt people sometimes accidentally all the time, even though I mean well. Yeah. Luckily, I've learned how to make amends and how to, how to apologize in, in the, the right way, the way that makes sense for me. Mm -hmm. This stuff is hard. Relationships are hard. I guess that's... <laughs> I'm just going to cap that with relationships are hard. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy how often I'll get on a coaching call with a client for the first time and they've read a lot of my stories, so they feel like, okay, this person's really honest and, and can hold this space about my trauma or whatever. And I have this very specific guidelines that I speak on each session, and the session opens with me saying, this time is set aside specifically for you. So the session will be this long. We'll close out a few minutes before the session. I'm going to check in with you and make sure that you feel really safe and understand everything that we talked about. And if you want to leave any pain in this space, you can. You don't have to take this with you. This can be your break away from um, your your pain and know that I'll hold it here until we meet again. But just know that this space right now is specifically for you to feel safe and say what you need to say. You would not believe women especially how often they cry immediately because they have just been bulldozed by men their entire lives. and. I don't want to go off the tangent on the patriarchy, but my respect for women and what they have endured is off the charts because of how much they've been overlooked because of a stupid system. And all they've needed is that, that invitation to say, you will not be interrupted. You will not be told that your feelings are invalid and you will have the freedom to express what you need to express. And man, women have the fucking power. I mean, they're amazing. And so it's, it's tragic to see how much they've been bulldozed and overlooked. It's powerful to hear what they have to offer because it's going to change the world. 
when you can hold space, which is what you're doing, sounds like in a really expert way, well, you, you give others an opportunity to open up and to share. You know, holding space for me is, some people ask me, you know, what does it mean to hold space? Uh, it means listening uh, generously. So not interrupting. Mm -hmm. It means uh, uh, resisting the urge to fix or give advice mm -hmm. unless I'm asked specifically to give advice. Mm -hmm. It is sort of repeating what I heard so that I make sure that I heard it correctly, right? So like really checking in about what it is that they said and did mm -hmm. I hear what, what you did I hear it in the way that you intended it to be heard? Um, and some empathy, some like mirroring or, um, oh, it sounds like this, or I get the impression that. Um, that's it, really. Mm -hmm. It's not anything more complicated than that. It does require you to like shut up and to just be there for somebody. And also to sit with the discomfort of holding somebody else's, well, witnessing somebody else's emotional reaction and experience. When I'm, when I'm training coaches who are gonna work for my coaching practice, the one issue that comes up with almost all of them is withholding advice and them having such a difficult time feeling valid as a coach and not speaking up and me me teaching them how to gauge how to help the person redirect back to themselves ask the appropriate questions so that they unveil the epiphany right. ask the appropriate questions so that they go down a journey of self-discovery and find the gold within themselves and that's probably the hardest part. I think that people in positions of leadership or a coach, a therapist, they want to feel like they have the great advice. And I get that. And, and a, a lot of the training is, is based around that. But I think really, if you want to help people in the most organic, holistic way, it's empowering them to reconnect with themselves. I love what you said, that recalibrating the inner internal compass. I mean, that's, that's kind of the core of what we do, but it's so hard for people to recognize how not to give advice and how asking a question instead of giving advice is so empowering to someone. And, and also knowing when advice is appropriate. I, I have a client, uh, I did a coaching session earlier this week where the client is going so hard at the stuff that we talk about. And I had to say this week, you have got to take a break. Mm -hmm. That may that may be a break from coaching, but you have got to just ease up on this process that you're going. I mean, she's so powerful what she's what she's going through in her life, and like as she's uncovering herself and she's connecting all these pieces to her story, but she's going at it so hard that it can be overwhelming. That's when you interject advice. Hey, you've got to you've got to pull back a little bit. Mm -hmm. But not, you need to feel this way about your 
potential ex-spouse or you need to do this or that's I just don't know that we're in a place in our culture right now where that's as beneficial as just asking the right questions to help someone discover themselves what they need. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I employ a different method. I go, uh, huh, I'm really curious to find out what would happen if you didn't push as hard as you've been pushing. And then to just let that sit there. Uh, it's the same strategy, you know, it's just a little less direct. You're right. You know, there there is an appropriate time. For people listening, if you're not a coach, uh, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Try the other stuff first. Um, I, I just did the healthy communication workshop back in back in April. And one of the things that we didn't cover, which I wanted to cover, was how not to give advice and how to, if you just can't help yourself because you really just really want them to know this thing that you know, um, instead of saying you should, you know, spread your peanut butter more evenly or uh, you need to cut them off or stop seeing them, you know, my preferred way of doing it, which is the way I do it in coaching sessions is I have a suggestion. Are you open to hearing it? I love that. If they say no, then that's a no. That's called consent. They have not consented to it, so you don't do it. Um, And if they say yes, gladly, well, then you've gotten buy-in. You've got permission to do it. So that's step one. And if you just can't help yourself and you're like, you're like a, a hardcore advice giver and you're trying to reform, you know, it's going to take a while. <laughs> I, I want to recognize that that's, you know, there are people like that. And I applaud you wanting to do it differently. You could say, have you considered, you know, not replying to their text message? Which gives the, you a little bit more room. You're giving the other person a little more credit that they might have considered the thing <laughs> the, the, that, that you're about to offer. One of the things that really bugs me is when someone says something really obvious, like you need to do this. It's like, yeah, I, I get it. I'm an adult. I figured this one out already. Thank you. But when you say, have you considered, it leaves room for the fact that you might have considered it. And it also like, it's like a sideways way of giving some advice. It's not quite as direct, uh, but there are a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different ways. And I prefer to ask people if they want, if like, I just can't help myself and I've got like the best piece of advice, <laughs> I'll ask it if they want it. And if they don't, then I don't give it. My friends joke with me about the word feedback, because when they disclose these, you know, extensive conversations about whatever they're going through in their life and we're checking in at the end, it's to the point where they're saying, I I do want feedback. I want feedback because I always say, do you want feedback? Because I just feel like that it's just not appropriate to start telling someone how to feel about stuff. My best friend and I wear it out where he's just constantly like the, the texting back and forth and he'll tell me something really stupid or send a picture of his kid and say, don't send me feedback. But it's really become part of my life where like everybody knows I'm not going to give feedback unless it's asked for. And I just feel like that's out of respect where like when you were taught, when you were given that example a few minutes ago and it's you and a friend and someone says, starts giving you advice when you've shared something, I imagine you 
immediately shutting down that internal compass and it's stopping and freezing. I envision that person asking the question, have you considered? And that doesn't shut it down. Like that helps the engagement stay where you can continue to evolve in that space with that person. Yeah, I could say, yeah, I've totally considered that. And here's why it's not going to work. It's less, it's less of a shutdown. There might be like a little, a little like hitch, yeah. you know, like a, a record skipping, it was like, Murp. but it won't stop it completely. Um, what I love about you just, what you just said is, you know, you want feedback. Sometimes people share stuff with us and we don't actually know what they want from us. And my favorite question is, you know, how can I best support you? Or, or what kind of support are you looking for? Do you want me to just listen? You want a sounding board? You want some advice? Like, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help is my favorite question ever. So maybe checking in with the person to see what kind of support they need. Because sometimes they might not know actually what they need until you ask them, what are they looking for? And they go, oh, hold on. Geez, you know what? I'd really like for you to just, I just want to run this by you. I just want you to listen. Okay, cool. No problem. I can easily do that. Or I'd love, let me tell you the story and then tell me what you think I should do. Okay, cool. No problem. That to me feels good. Feels collaborative. Do you have a hard time being interrupted? Like when you're mid-flow in a sentence and someone interrupts you? I will like stop talking to them. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's probably, I would say if there's one thing that triggers me, that's it. I, I would assume at some point I probably did that because that is how I grew up. I mean, I, I grew up in an environment where I would guarantee every T cross, every I dotted certain that between birth to 18, I was never able to finish a single sentence with a period. And I'm sure that I did that to others growing up, but I've just noticed that I, I just, I really enjoy hearing people speak and kind of, I think once you create healing and you settle or sorry, we recalibrate the internal compass, it just leaves room for you to have space for other people. If you have a lot of chaos, you're going to have a very difficult time connecting with someone else, no matter you know where they're at. And once you create a lot of that peace inside, it gives you the margin to give energy and focus to someone else's story without getting hooked or trapped. Mm. And when you hold that space and you're actually able to effectively listen and experience that with them, it's so calming for you too. Like it's really calming to recognize that this is offering two people a gift in that space. So interrupting immediately takes a sacred moment and destroys it. It just destroys it where I, I facilitate these groups and in the groups when someone at the beginning of the group, someone checks in and when they're checking in, the rule is no loud noises, absolutely no interruption and no questions until they're done checking in. And the whole purpose of that is if they know that they're safe in this group of other people, they may get to the conclusion and the solution to what they're looking for by the end of talking this through. Mm. The moment you interrupt, you break their you break their safety. You break their train of thought where they felt safe and connected. And if you just surround them 
with energy and space that says, no matter what you need to say, you will not be interrupted. They can process that all the way through and potentially have a conclusion Hmm. on their own that's really beneficial. Hmm. One of my favorite things is hearing someone do a check-in in these groups. And at the end of their check-in, they say, no feedback needed. I feel great. And it's just knowing that they were in a safe spot and it works. It just requires each person being committed to maintaining consistency in their inner dialogue, where if I want to connect with people in a really sacred and genuine way, I've got to give them the space to share their stories. If I can't, if I'm not able to not interrupt someone, that means I have a lot of internal chaos that needs to be addressed. (laughs) Wow. Beautiful. And so many things, like as you were talking, I was like, oh yeah, there's a thing, and there's a thing, and there's another thing. And it's very meta because I was finding myself like, oh, there's some internal chaos here. Like I'm wanting to like connect and say like, <laughs> yes, man, yes, that's definitely. And then here's a tangent, there's a tangent, there's a tangent. Uh, or I could just shut up and let you get to where you're going. Because when you start something, you don't know where they're going you might not even know where you're going, right? And like you said, in your example, sometimes no feedback needed. They get there on their own. Even when they start, they might not know where they're going or where they're going to end up. And yeah, some people have a lot of internal chaos. And I'm just, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about couples fighting and how it starts with something and then derails completely into a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, probably because there's a lot of unresolved conflict. And so as soon as you bring one thing up, the everything but the kitchen, including the kitchen sink, comes into the argument, and then you can't make sense of it anymore because it's too big. And that's where the beauty of just shutting up and letting them finish, you know, listening to them, processing what they're saying. Okay, now how does that feel inside? Now I'm going to talk for a little bit. Uh, my partner and I do this thing called heart to heart. And we usually do it when there's some sort of conflict, uh, some friction or something. And basically the rule is like, whenever anybody wants to do a heart to heart, we sort of make it a priority. And that's where we set aside like several hours where we set up like a little container, a safe container uh, with, you know, little altar and some ritual stuff, ceremonial stuff, um, Palo Santo or like some sage or whatever, and a feather that we can pass, you know, the speaking stick. Mm-hmm. And we speak from our heart, from a place of I, for as long as we feel like talking. And then when you're done, you say, I feel complete. And then the other person takes the feather and they talk. Sometimes it's about the thing. Oftentimes we try to keep it personal. This is how I feel when you, you know, like it's not like it's not a conversation. It's actually just a one way messages. And we do that until we both feel complete. It's a beautiful exercise in just listening and holding space. And the more, the more you do it, the easier it gets to do. I felt so light hearing you explain that because you're not saying, I mean, clearly we've had this rupture in our relationship. Something's 
going on that needs to be repaired. And you're not saying you, you're saying I. And just knowing, I, I'm just, I'm imagining you and your partner and then that, the power of passing the feather back and forth. But then when you have that feather, the freedom and peace of saying what you are about to say matters. And the reason that it needs to be said is to validate your experience and make the other aware mm. of what's true for you. That's it. I love it. I that's, love it. Man. That's it. That's it. That's really it. Yeah, you kind of nailed it. You know, sometimes I'll say like, you know, when you did this, I felt this. The story I'm telling myself is, this is connected to my childhood in these ways. The importance of that is, and I'm letting them in. And they can't interrupt. I mean, they can, but they don't interrupt. Which just not interrupting validates. Right? Like when you interrupt, you sort of invalidate because you're saying, okay, enough of that. That's not important. Here, this is what I have to say. So how can you feel seen and heard when someone doesn't even let you finish? I just want to recognize, and I say this often, I, I know that. I want to recognize that I also recognize that. It's hard. Relationships are hard. I feel so basic sometimes saying this stuff, but I think it's important for people to know that like, if you're struggling in your relationship or in any relationship with your parents, with your siblings, with your work, uh, that's pretty natural. It's natural. We are all struggling in some way, shape or form. And we're all hurting in some way, shape or form. And so how can it not be difficult if we're all going through our own personal experience and trying to connect in the best way that we can with the things that we've learned knowing that like some of those things are deeply flawed and some of us are walking around with a tremendous amount of, of trauma that's unresolved and unexplored and unexamined. So yeah, if you're struggling, that makes sense. We did our inner child workshop, inner child webinar this past week. And one of the things that I highlight is talking about, we each have a timeline. So today I'm 42 years old. My timeline is exactly 42 years long. On that timeline are very specific experiences that marked me and made me very aware and alert of that experience. It could be good or it could be bad, but those marked are very specific for my timeline. In relationships, no one will hit that timeline and those marks more than someone close to you. That's how relationships work. So while you may be, so today I'm 42 years old. If I have a conflict in a relationship that activates my story from when I was six years old, that six-year-old brings all this pain and frustration or whatever to the surface. And I'm feeling that and I'm encountering that and I'm experiencing that. And I have to go inward and say to that six-year-old, completely understand why you're activated right now. I've got this covered. You're safe with me. I'm going to address this directly with them. And so it's, it's, it's recognizing that in those conflicts, we have so many stories that live inside of us. And once we connect to those stories and reprocess those stories all the way through, our ability to be present with someone else is so much more thorough mm. because we're not constantly being activated with this part of us that's begging for our attention and begging to be understood and validated. And that's overwhelming to us. We ignore it that much more and then pick partners based on that pain and based on that trauma and are activated all the time by that story when the goal and the key and the most beautiful movement is going back to that story from current day, engaging that and reprocessing that story. 
And that gives you the freedom in relationships to know that all of the stuff that gets goes on inside of me that gets activated, I have the ability to connect with that part of myself. And how I treat that part of myself is going to heavily reflect how I show up in relationships. Mm. Yeah. Do you repress it or do you give it the space that it requires? Right. Do you give it, do you validate it? Do you validate the little guy inside who is hurting? And and you get to say, yeah, I got this. I'll take care of you. Don't worry. And who doesn't have the same coping skills that we do? No, it's a kid. Right. <laughs> it knows tantrums. Right. It knows tantrums and it knows acting out, which, you know, uh, we know tantrums and we know acting out as adults as well. <laughs> um, that's beautiful. Wow. I feel like a sense of peace just hearing you, the, the way you speak to your inner child or the way you counsel people to speak to their inner child. That work changed me, man. It was, it was from a very dark experience, a very dark personal experience years ago where I was hurting so much, but I, I had this box of pictures from birth all the way up to 32 years old. And I lined them up in a, on the wall in my um, apartment and I surrounded them with my favorite quotes and musings and just things that I had jotted down, like insp- any kind of inspirational words. And for a month, I would put my hand on that picture, whatever age that was, and I would speak one of those quotes into that picture. And that is how I started really validating myself and my own pain. That was several years ago. But I had no idea that that was going to be the base of all of my coaching. And so when we did this on the webinar, I explained to the guy, you know, what we're doing because I'm not technical at all. And so I hired someone to do all the technical admin stuff for the webinar. And he said, let's do this platform and maybe, you know, you'll sell out half of the tickets. We've got 10 days. And he was like, this is kind of a new concept. Sean, we sold out max capacity in three days. So then we bought another platform and then that sold out. And then we finally just like, save the recording and that it's, it continues to be downloaded because people are connecting with this idea of this is the framework of how to go to a part of myself and validate with pro- appropriate words. I talk about the four pillars of communication and how we communicate with our inner child, but it goes with any younger part of ourself that's ever been harmed or has a story. And it's recognizing their story is over, but they're living with the aftermath of it. So it's validating that so that they can feel current and present. You can never go back to your younger self and say, you should have, you ought to, I wish you would have. That's incredibly inappropriate. That's sending them in a spiral. That's unfair. And I talk about the four pillars of communications being patience, kindness, curiosity, and compassion. And imagine being in a room with a younger version of you or your inner child. And those th- those four things being in the corner. And that's how you engage that part of yourself. Oh my God. It's amazing to see the clarity that comes when we learn to have that kind of experience with our internal self. Also, you know, the love that you give your little dude or your little gal, your little person, your inner child, you get it back as an adult, like exponential, right? You give it to the little kid and you get it back right away because you're the little kid. I'm really glad that that the workshop was a hit and this feels to me like an appropriate time for you to tell us about where we can find your work. But before we do that, I just want to make sure 
do you feel complete in our conversation? Yeah, I've loved it. The conversation, the the dialogue between you and your partner with the feather is going to stick with me all day and just really I'm I'm just burying that inside of myself to think about how often am I holding the feather and how often am I passing it oh. on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I love it. Oh, like a an equal exchange of giving and receiving. Yeah. Uh, okay, thank you for that. <laughs> Um, where can we find your work and this, this webinar, I'm assuming is still available. Yeah. So I've done a terrible job with like the marketing and branding of everything. I have like 16 different ways to find me. My story, my blog and podcast is the other side of save. That's where this whole thing started that directs you to all of my social media. My, um, coaching website is storyconnectcoaching.com. You'll see, um, my bio on there and that's a great way to reach out for someone who's interested in coaching and that also leads to social media my twitter is nate post coach and my instagram is nate underscore postal weight and it's just worth going to the website to find me because my last name's complicated and i'll have links obviously to all of this in the show notes yeah and or if you use the hashtag the healing collective you'll find my work okay. on instagram yeah you've got a lot of different different brands there nate <laughs> yeah, i know He's, I've just, I've just got someone helping consolidate all of this because it's just a little out of control right now. Have you considered getting someone to help you consolidate all of this? That is such great feedback. (laughs) That is such great (laughs) feedback. All right. I got one more question for you. Um, what does love mean to you? What does love mean to me? I'm taking a deep breath and feeling it from inside out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for spending this hour with Nate and me today. Really means the world. And if you want to open up more, emotionally and want to become more emotionally available and intimate with yourself and with your loved ones. I just wrapped up session three of the emotional availability workshop, and it is available for you for immediate download. Go to thelovedrive.com forward slash be more open. You'll get over six hours of video instruction, a 80 page resource document and access to the private lovebird group, which is a group on Facebook for people who value love, trust and intimacy. And you are welcome. Thelovedrive.com forward slash be more open and have a beautiful week.